The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. God's desire that we, that He be with us. It's, it's mutual. He desires to be with us, and we desire, if you're a believer, our greatest desire is to be with Him in His immediate presence, uninhibited in relationship, intimacy, worship, and service. And that day is yet coming. But to prepare us for the glories of what is yet to come, the main ones being service and worship of our great God. God has privileged us and allowed us to serve and worship during this life before then. In a cursed world, living with sinful people, and our own selves inhibited by our own Sin, disrupting that perfect communion, fellowship, and service that we as believers desire with our great God. But it is our privilege. And so we don't have to wait till the millennium or eternity to desire and even experience God's greatest desire for himself and us, and that is service and worship to him. And so that's that's been on my heart. That's why I changed the title yesterday. But these are truths that have been percolating in my heart over several weeks, some of these even months. So today I just kind of want to do a Bible study on this theme of true worship. So I don't know, I've got a list of many passages, but you might get tired after about two hours, so I'll cut it back. So I'm not going to promise we're going to get through all of them, but Lord willing in our time together, that point of emphasis, true worship, what it is, and why it's a priority for us will come shining through very clearly. And to set the stage, let me just give you two verses right up front. We'll go to John chapter 4 first, and then you can have your finger in Romans chapter 12. Both of these passages emphasize worship from God's point of view. We have our own ideas of worship and definitions. But these two give us God's definition of worship and what it entails. We can't improve upon that. So in John chapter 4, the context is uh, Jesus and his apostles are traveling from uh, one place to another, and they have to pass through Samaria, which is polluted ground by a polluted people, the half-breeds, the Samaritans, which the Jews of Jesus' day, they consider them unclean, and you don't interact with Samaritans, but Jesus decided to go through Samaria, through the polluted town, and risking interacting with these polluted people called the Samaritans, because Jesus didn't think anybody was polluted any more than anybody else. He loved people, because all human beings are made in God's image. Every human life is precious and sacred, and Jesus is the God-man, and he has a heart for people. He doesn't mind going through Samaria. So his disciples, so they're, it's hot, it's noonday. They get tired and thirsty. Jesus sends them on a little mission to go to the local market and get some food and water. In the meantime, he's going to rest, and he comes into Samaria here, and he sits down. And as the God-man, he is tired. He is thirsty here in the middle of the day. And here's this woman all by herself. 
She's an outcast. She's a sinful woman. She's an immoral woman. She's getting water from the well. And Jesus has a conversation with this woman. And he has a goal in mind. He has a heart for her and compassion. He wants to give her the truth, the saving truth to her about himself, what true religion is. The most important thing being who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he reveals his identity to this sinful, wicked woman that your average Jew wouldn't even give the time of day to. So it is alarming, it's shocking that he would even talk to her, let alone truly care for her, and he does. It's the heart of Christ. And they talk about his identity, they talk about worship, they talk about the Jews versus the Samaritans. And then in this conversation, John 4, 21, Jesus defines true worship to let her know what true religion is all about because the Samaritans had a compromised view of religion. It was kind of half Jewish and half poisoned by paganism. It was an eclectic uh, mess, really. But this woman was convinced that the Samaritans had the true religion. And Jesus says no. The Samaritans' emphasis in religion was the externals. Do this, do that, checklist, checklist, Christianity or religion, whatever you want to call it. Human works, human achievement. So Jesus has to correct her. And here's his definition of worship, starting at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, this is not, that's just a general term of respect. He doesn't know her well, humanly speaking, but he is showing her respect. Uh, woman, believe me, an hour is coming in the future when neither in this mountain, there in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, where the Jews worship, Will you worship the Father? Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. You, the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. You, the Samaritans, have prostituted the Mosaic law. You don't even know what you're doing. That's a good definition of false religion, pseudo-religion. You think you know what you're doing? You don't. Because you don't know what pleases God. You don't even know what true worship is. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, according to... The legitimate Mosaic law, as understood by Christ, which was the perfect understanding, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Israel was the conduit by which God, Yahweh, gave true religion to the world. That's your Old Testament. Verse 23, but an hour is coming, well, things are going to change. God isn't always going to just be working through the small channel of compromised, faithless Israel. But an hour is coming in the future, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. An hour is coming, and now an hour is coming. A new era is coming. A new time is dawning. It begins with me, the Lord Jesus, the Savior. And I, when I die on the cross, I'm buried and I rise again from the dead, and I send into heaven, I send my Holy Spirit, and I begin the church and create a new entity called the body of Christ where Jew and Gentile come together in the gospel of Jesus Christ by passing the requirements of the 613 laws of the Mosaic law reserved from the Jews a new era is coming. It's the gospel of grace fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ where both Jew, Gentile, and even you compromised Samaritans will have access to it by God's grace through faith. It's a beautiful prospect. That's the hour that is coming. Now is begins with Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the world. When the true worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's the distinctive of true biblical Christianity. It's internal, true religion. It's of the heart. That's his point. 
What did the Samaritans do? They had a religion. They abided by some of the Mosaic law, and it was strictly external. Human achievement. Oh, I did this, and I did this, and self-improvement here, and I'm trying to appease God with my good deeds. I know my baddie pile is over here, and it's growing, but i got to grow my goodie pile higher than my baddie pile. Literally, that's human achievement, and that's the characteristic of every false religion and ideology in the history of the world. And Christianity is completely set apart from that true religion from day one. It's always been an issue of the heart for God. Most evidently shown to us way back in Genesis with Cain and Abel. They were two real people, real human beings. They got revelation from God. There was an expectation of how they were to, tr to worship the true God the correct way. Able and perfect obedience and compliance with what God required offered a pleasing sacrifice to God with the right heart attitude, the inner spirit. Cain, his offering was not accepted by God. It was not pleasing to the Lord. God didn't accept it. And actually made God angry. It's false religion. Coupled with that in Cain's disobedience was the wrong attitude, the wrong heart on the inside. That's the priority. And that's what Jesus means. And I know coming in hour is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Pharisees were all about externals, legalism. Jesus exposed them. It's all about, it starts with the heart. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That's such an amazing phrase there. For such people, true worshipers. For such people, those who have a desire to worship in spirit and truth, for such people, those who want to know and love their creator God first on the inside, from the heart, from the mind, from the conscience, from the motives, spirit and truth. So it's personal, it is internal, it is intimate. Spirit, that's spirit. Truth, it has to be in keeping with the revelation of God. God has laid it out very clearly. This is how you worship me. I am holy, which means first and foremost, I am to be treated separately and differently than the false gods of the world in your own agenda. And God is very specific. He's very jealous about how he receives glory and how we are to approach him and worship him as a holy God. So our worship needs to be from the inside, from the heart, by the way, God is the only one who can see the heart. We know that. Human beings look at the outside, superficially, shallow, wrong most of the time, illegitimate conclusions, false diagnosis, impugning motives illegitimately. Humans look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Jesus is just saying the same thing here. This is what God has always desired and expected. And when he says in truth, that's objective truth. That's divine revelation. God has laid it out. We can't add to that truth. We can't subtract from that truth. We can't compromise that truth. We can't tweak that truth, even just a little bit, because we have good intentions, or because of our difficult circumstances, or because of the times and the seasons in which we find ourselves. No. That's what we're going to see today, true worship. This is true worship. And notice, did you hear that thing that started about 20 years ago? Seeker-sensitive religion, seeker-sensitive Christianity, seeker-sensitive, seeker. We roll out the red carpet and everything else at the church service to cater to the seekers, the seekers. And the seekers were defined as unbelievers who might be interested in this thing called God. 
And so the church, first and foremost, needs to cater everything in the service to the seekers. And that's just completely contrary to the Bible because there's only one real seeker. That's God. It's right here. He is the seeker. It says, it says it point blank. The Father. For such people, the Father seeks. Who's the true seeker? It's God the Father. He is seeking true worshipers. He isn't just seeking. He's hounding after us because we're running away from him as fast as we can as sinners. That's what Adam and Eve did. Human beings of their own volition and their own sinful nature. We don't, they don't seek after God. That's in the Bible. Romans 3. No one seeks after God in and of themselves. Jesus said, when he gave, Jesus said in Luke why he came into this world, why he was born and came as the Savior. He said it. The Son of Man came into this world to seek and to save sinners. So this says God the Father is the seeker. Jesus himself called himself the seeker. And scripture also says that the Holy Spirit is seeking his people as well. It's the triune God that is the seeker, not us. We want to run and hide in our sin. But it all starts in the heart. And spirit, uh, our, our worship needs to be this way, after all, because it has to do with the character and the nature of God. God is not an idol. He's not a thing. He's not a person. He's not a man. He's not, God the Father doesn't have a body. He's not limited. He's not finite. He's not fickle. He's not Zeus. God is spirit. He's unlike anything we know. He's not like us. We're made in his image, but he's completely different from us. God is spirit. He's beyond all creation. He is infinite. He is imminent. And everything related to that glorious truth, God is spirit. There's only one way to approach him. That is immediately in your inner spirit. It's direct. It's immediate. It's in faith. It's an amazing truth. God is infinite. He's transcendent. He's wholly other, completely separated from us. He's bigger than all the creation, the universe, and the heavens itself. And yet how close is God? He is just a prayer away. That is immediate and instantaneous. Why? Because he is spirit. We have the Spirit of God that allows us that communication with Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must, must. This small Greek word, it matters, it's specific, it's used consistently all the time. And what it means is this is what God requires. You can't deviate from it, you can't invent your own way. And again, you can't add to it or take from it. This is how you must worship the true people of God. And this is how He is to be approached. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the second one is, and these are key and foundational for what we're going to talk about today, true worship. That's God's very definition. And then here's a practical definition and how it works out by the Spirit of God himself through the vessel of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. The Apostle Paul, not just an apostle, but also a pastor who loved people, talking to fellow Christians, and he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, therefore I urge you, I exhort you, I remind you, if you're a Christian, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you won't even comprehend this. You won't even understand this. As a matter of fact, you won't want anything to do with this. You will write it off. You will resist it. You'll stick your hand in God's face. So this is for believers. And it's a command. It is not a suggestion. Therefore, these 11 chapters that I wrote about who God is and who Jesus is and why he died and rose again and saved his people in the role of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, now that you know all this, 
the fundamentals of Christianity by the mercies of God, by the grace of God. That's where it starts. It's by grace. We don't seek him. He seeks us. And when he finds us and exposes us to the gospel, and we believe, we, with volition, we do believe, we respond, we commit to Christ, we embrace him, we repent of our sins. There are things we do. We're not robots. We do. We're accountable. We're responsible. We're expected to. There are imperatives given even to the unbeliever. Here's what you need to do to your creator, to your judge, to your future savior, if you believe. And here's believers, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, from an apostle, this is binding, this is authoritative, this is universal, this transcends time and cultures and all classes of people, if you're a believer, what is it we need to do? We need to present our bodies as a living, living and holy sacrifice. That's, that is our main priority as Christians. It's present tense. Continue to present your body. Everything, that means, it's all inclusive. Everything about you, not just your physical body, everything about you. Your thoughts, your desires, your goals, your whole life, the way you conduct yourself, the way you use your body, how you spend your time, conversations you have, all of it. It's all consuming. And Paul's taking this right out of Leviticus and the, the sacrifices that were offered to God. They were all very specific for specific purposes. And there was that first sacrifice that was, it was all-consuming. It was one of the all, only all-consuming sacrifices. There was just... The entire thing was consumed in fire, offered up to God, symbolizing, God, I give you my all. Why? Because he expects our all. That's what this is. Present your body ongoing forever. So when you meet a fellow Christian during the week, how's it going? What are you doing today? Well, I'm trying to present my entire life to God as a sacrifice. Man, it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. Got all these stumbling blocks in my way, all these distractions. Worst enemy of all, it's, it's me. Present your body. Present your entire life in an ongoing, regular manner as a living and holy, that means separated. Holy, by the way, in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus, is attached to, and you should be thinking one thing in mind. Holy means separated as God has dictated and delineated. That's what it means, holy. Then just say holy in the back, and it's holy, and let me explain to you what holy is. It's completely separated, and you need to do everything this way in contrast to the pagans and the world. That's what holy means. Holy is always attached to specific mandates and requirements from God. We're living in holy sacrifice. God is completely holy and separated, and so we need to live in a separated manner. And this is acceptable to God. We need to live in such a way that God is pleased. Why do, how do you live your life? Well, as a Christian, I live it to please God. It should be our goal, right? Acceptable God, which is your, and this is the key part of the phrase there, this is your spiritual service of worship. This is how the Christian worships God. It's not doing things. How is worship today? Oh, it's great for an hour. And, you know, people think that's an hour and 20 minutes at church. That was worship. No, that's, that's not what this is talking about. How is worship today? Oh, the songs were great. No, that's not what I'm talking about. This, this is true worship. 24-7, day-to-day, the Christian interfacing, having intimacy, Daily walk step by step with his Savior, with her Savior. 
That is spiritual worship. The contrast there with spiritual worship, because there is human worship, works righteousness, legalistic worship, that's the point. We aren't called to be legalistic. It's living in intimacy with God. So with those two key passages of laying the foundation of good reminders of what true worship is, I want to transition and just say a couple of things. It's been 12, one on 13 months since the world was hit with the pandemic. 13 months of this COVID thing. And nobody expected what would happen, what it would entail. I don't think anybody expected a year ago where we would be today that, you know, things are still in place, mandates, restrictions, masks, all that stuff. No one was expecting that or saying that at the time. So I, I just thought it'd be good to do some reflection. Several people have asked, legitimately so, personally me, how's it going in church? How's it gone through COVID? How did your people do? I'm talking about you people have asked. How are my brothers and sisters doing? Any of our members got sick? Anybody severely ill? What's the state of the unit? So I thought, yeah, this is a good time to give some of those updates in light of true worship. So that's what I would like to do. So let me start with uh, just some kind of maybe in-house pastoral family items, and then we'll branch out from there. And I'll do it this way. I'll start with the February 5th LA Times article with this headline. Quote, Supreme Court rules California churches may open despite the pandemic, end quote. That was LA Times. They're not a Christian organization, the LA Times, but that was their headline. February 5th. Then, what, three weeks later? Yeah, exactly three weeks later, another headline, February 26th. Quote, the Supreme Court clears the way for indoor worship services in Northern California, specifically Santa Clara County. That's where we are. Wait, wait a minute. The Supreme Court clears the way on February 26th? I thought they cleared the way on February 5th. Oh, no, wait a minute. I thought they cleared the way the day before Thanksgiving when the Supreme Court of the United States cleared the way for houses of worship, including churches, as essential and can continue to meet indoors. That was the day before Thanksgiving. The Supreme Court, the highest judgment upon the law on the land. That's what they said. They didn't make that up. It wasn't a new decree. It wasn't an ad hoc, spontaneous thought. They got it from the Constitution of the United States. Now, in the last 12 to 13 months, I personally haven't heard a whole lot of people in discussion on this, and just everybody that talked. Not a whole lot of people bringing up the Constitution or, or quoting it or referring to it. And as Christians, we... We don't live first and foremost by the Constitution, but we don't ignore the Constitution. Romans 12 compels us, or 13, compels us to give attention, priority, and due respect to the law of the land. So listen to what the Constitution says. Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. This is a quote. Congress 
Congress shall make no law. Okay, Congress is the only institution, entity federally in the United States here that is allowed to make laws. That's, first of all, that's important. Congress can make laws. That's how laws are made. I mean, nobody else is supposed to be making laws that are universally binding in our country. Presidents aren't supposed to be making laws. That's not their job. The Supreme Court doesn't make laws. That's not their job. Governors of states don't make laws. That's not their job. I'm talking about federal laws. Mayors don't make laws. That's not their job. Unelected bureaucrats don't make laws. That's not their job. Local county health officials who are unelected, they don't have the authority to make laws. Sheriffs don't make laws. Are, are we getting the point here? I don't want to be understood or misunderstood. I want to be understood. Congress shall make no law, which means Congress has the authority to make laws, but they can't make bad ones. They can't make illegitimate ones. That's what it means. So Congress, who has the authority, Congress, the Senate, and the House, that's what that means. The legislative branch, civics, 101. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So here in the United States, they can't make a state religion and say, okay, everybody has to be a, a Zen Buddhist. Because that's what they did in the UK, tried to, and that's what the people resisted and rebelled against. Forcing religion on people from a government level. That's never been God's design. So Congress can't do that. Can't mandate a world. The, the Antichrist one is going to do that. He's going to force his own religion on the entire world. Force it by coercion, by threats, by violence, by death. That's what the whole mark on the hand and the forehead was. Forced religion. Here in the United States, uh, Congress can't do that. All right, that makes sense. Or here's another thing that Congress cannot do here in the United States. Congress cannot do the prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The government of the United States is not allowed to prohibit free exercise of religion. That's an umbrella statement. That's an open-ended statement. That is a general statement. So the United States government, by the way, that's the highest law of the land, the highest authority, the United States federal government, and every other local municipal underneath it has no authority to inhibit, undermine free religion and the exercise thereof. By the way, this is the law of the land. This is the law. This was the established law of the United States of America for over two centuries. We didn't know the law. It's basic. So the government does not have the right of prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They can't even make a law to do that. And furthermore, the Congress shall not do, any, do anything abridging the freedom of speech. What am I doing here preaching? I'm, this is freedom of speech. I am unfiltered. I am uninhibited. I am guided by the Bible. And I am not worried. I don't care if it offends anybody. If I am true and faithful to Scripture, I care about the response of the people. I love people. But I honor God, Christ, Him, most and foremost. Then we preach the Word of God undiluted. That is our mission. That's our calling. And that's why for 2,000 years of church history, there are repercussions for that. There's persecution of the church. Continually, people trying to silence the church and muzzle the church. Shut the church down. Shut down preachers. Shut down truth-tellers. 
Because they're offensive. Because sinners get offended when you tell them they are sin. They need to repent. They need to bow to Christ. He is king. He's the only king. He is the creator. He's the judge of your soul. Sinners don't like that unless God intervenes, softens their heart, removes blindness from personal sin, removes satanic blindness supernaturally through the power of the Word of God. That's the only place it comes from in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit on the Word of God, on a recalcitrant, hard-hearted sinner. So, this constitutional law that's been in place since the beginning, as the law of the land, it's clear. Our government can't even make laws that inhibit our freedom of religion and the exercise thereof, the freedom of speech that we do in church. But it keeps going. There's more. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the right of the people, that's American citizens, to peaceably assemble. What are we doing now? This is a peaceable assembly. Couldn't be any clearer. This whole article of the U.S. Constitution is about doing church for God's people. We have the right to assemble peaceably, and no government institution is allowed to make a law to undermine that right. That's what it says. And then it concludes with this. Here's one of our rights. Here's, things, here's three things government can't do, and here's another thing that the people can do. And it closes with this. We have the right as people, as citizens, to petition the government, go before the government, plead with the government, take the government to court. That's what that means. To go before the magistrates, to go before the judges, to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That means you can sue the government if they violate any one of these rights. Really, Pastor? Yeah, that's exactly what that means. Well, should Christian, I thought Christians were never supposed to sue or go to court. Wrong. Now, the elders here at our church for the last 13 months, we have been diligent. We have been cautious. We have been prayerful. We have sought counsel. We've sought much counsel. We've searched the word. We were committed to being unified on every front of every decision that we made that impacted the local church and our people, our sheep here. We've been in sync every step of the way. We haven't done anything flippantly, selfishly, from the very beginning. I don't think we did one thing that I wanted to do. Aren't you glad you got six other elders? If we did everything I wanted to do, I would probably still be in jail and many of you would be there with me. Maybe there would be locks on the doors of this facility. And I am not kidding. So I needed to be restrained, held accountable, enlightened, softened by the Spirit of God, illuminated by the truth of His Word, but in the very beginning, by the end of March, a year ago, the Bible says if you want wisdom, then you need to seek a multitude of counselors. The key is a multitude of godly counselors. You can seek a multitude of idiots and fools and get the answer you want, which is the wrong one. So that's what I began to do. I just thought, okay, who are the most experienced 
most godly, oldest shepherds, elders, pastored on planet Earth. Okay, here's my short list. I'll start calling them. Gene Getz, 87 years old or whatever he is, the patriarch of evangelical Christianity and ecclesiology, church planter, extraordinary, man of God, still kicking, still a fireball. And I got through and probably talked to him for an hour. How's it going at your church? What's going on down there in Texas? Everything's shut down. What do we do? What do your elders think? It was hard. He said, yeah, this is difficult. In my 87 years, I have never seen anything like this. He's been all over the world. Very fruitful discussion. Uh, very sobering. He, he pulled my chain a little bit. Pulled it back. Whoa. That's just one example. Uh, called and have been in contact with routinely uh, the elders at Grace Community Church, Pastor John MacArthur, 82 years old, reliable shepherd, committed to the word of God. 40 elders they have. Every decision they made was unanimous. And I'm talking with one of their elders every single, I know about 12 of their elders. Godly men, three of them are lawyers down there in Los Angeles every single week. Uh, another church down in Southern California, Bill Barrick, he's in his 80s, elder, credible man of God. Talk to him for an hour. And much, much more. Pastors all over literally the country. How's it going in Florida? What's going on in Texas? What's going on in Idaho? And on and on. What do your elders think? What are your people doing? Talking to pastors and church leaders all over the world. Pastors in the UK. Pastors in Ukraine. And more. Pastors in Honduras. Pastors in Spain. Every step of the way. Gleaning all this wisdom. Sharing it with our elders. Praying, moving slowly, cautious, all the while finding out where every one of our members was personally on this issue. Are you a mask person or an anti-mask person? And so many other issues that came up at the time. So we, you know, there's at least a couple categories. Well, we actually came up with, I think, eight or nine different categories of where our sheep were. That doesn't even count my unique, weird, deviant position. That would make number 10. Because <laughs> nobody wanted to do what I wanted to do. But anyway. How, and so the dilemma was, this is like late March. This is a year ago. Okay, how do we shepherd faithfully our 182 adult members who have nine different positions on all of these issues? Here it is, 13 months. I don't know of another church that did that. The standard approach was, well... We got the people who are afraid and the people who aren't afraid, and so the elders take a vote, and we'll go with the majority, and so here's our policy. We're going to go with the afraid people, and we're going to shut down church forever indefinitely. That was pretty common. And I talked to some of those pastors. Well, really? So the vote was 51% to 49%, 51 What about those 49 other percent of the people? their needs, their desires, what kind of shepherding do they get? 
challenging question that needed to be raised. So this is going on behind the scenes. Uh, if you're a member of the church here at our church, we didn't make this up. It's in the Bible. It's Hebrews 11. It says, listen to your, I mean, Hebrews 13, 17. If you're part of a local fellowship, you need to listen to your elders, your shepherds. And that's assuming that the, the elders and shepherds are qualified shepherds. Okay, so we're just assuming that is true. And they're walking with integrity before God. They are your leaders. God has appointed them there. They have delegated limited authority. And part of their authority is the jurisdiction of the local church. So Hebrews 13, you need to hear your elders. Listen to your elders. That's what I mean. And then that scary word that comes after it, that other verb that's an imperative, and you need to obey them, submit to them. Do what they tell you to do. Not in every area of life, but in church matters, with respect to your soul and what's clearly outlined in Scripture. So when you do church, how you do church, how you interact with the saints, yes. And we are accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ for what we tell you. That's frightening. So we take it seriously. I'd say most of our members were wonderful to work with along the way. Most, not all, sadly. But you need to know that. That's what went on behind the scenes. Just a few accusing the elders of being flippant. We're not taking the pandemic seriously. And worse, that's okay. We didn't react. Because when you're chasing a scared sheep that left the fold, it's in the bushes and in the rough and in the thorns. You don't give them a scolding there. You pull them out of the thorns, right? And you pull the thorns out and you put them on your shoulders and you care for them and mend their wounds and bring them back and let them heal. That's what a shepherd is supposed to do. So there were trials along the way. And I think our, our church, our shepherds, we did, we did a lot. Our staff did a lot. Okay, how can we best minister to these nine different groups? And over the course of the last 13 months, we have had seven to eight different venues in which everybody was comfortable. We didn't demand that everybody come back to church, and we also didn't shut the church down indefinitely. It's discouraged half the congregation. Oh, here's what we will do. And it was hard work. It was arduous. It was time-consuming. Two, two weeks ago, a local pastor from Sacramento calls me on the phone. We're talking. He says, and as you know, during the pandemic, during this time, that our workload as pastor has increased Tenfold. I was like, oh man, well, that's with you too? And he said, yeah. He says, that's true of every pastor that I'm talking to. That's true of Shepherd. Cares about their people. So it hasn't been a vacation closing the church down. It, it demands more time, energy, and effort because now your contacts have to be very deliberate and spread all over the place. Now we've got nine groups of people we've got to cater to, to minister to, to see where they're at and bring them along and make sure they're fed, growing, protected. So it hasn't been easy. But there have been many of our saints very encouraging along the way. Many emails and conversations. And uh, Elders, we're praying for you. Difficult situation. We're upholding you in prayer. Every one of those I saw, I just took it very seriously. Thank you. Amen. We need this. And I will say God bless. I think the first sermon we ever preached on this issue back in a year ago was from Hebrews 2 by Pastor Derek on Do Not Fear. Do not fear. That's really been one of the main challenges. Fear. What kind of fear? Is it legitimate or not? 
And that's what we had to shepherd. We had to shepherd our people. By the way, last week, an update. This is an answer to prayer. We had 190 people on the campus last week, which is the highest number we've had in 13 months. Praise God. Yeah, you can clap. Little by little, people getting comfortable coming out. So I, I did want to give you kind of that pastoral background insight regarding your shepherds. After all, you know, you need to know what they're doing behind the scenes. They need your prayers. They care for you. They love you. Speaking first and foremost to our members and also secondarily to our regular attenders who have been here. Um, but anyway, going back to the Constitution, we have the right uh, for redress of grievances. And then it, I asked the question, so, but you, Christians can't sue. I just refer you to Acts 16. We already covered it in an article. Acts 16, the Apostle Paul goes into Philippi. It's a Roman colony. And he's a Roman citizen by birth. So he has full rights and privileges, even as a stranger in that town, Philippi. The two magistrates that run the joint and the health officials don't know who he is. They don't know he's a Roman official or a Roman citizen. He's just some stranger saying weird stuff. We don't like him. Nope. He's a Christian. He's, he came and he preaches preaches about Jesus, people start repenting, getting saved, putting away their sinful lifestyles that brought in money for their bosses, the union, the bosses get mad, they get enraged, and spontaneously out of the blue in midday, they go up to Paul and Silas, and it says they seized them, violently grabbed them, dragged them, that's the verb used, seized them and dragged them through the city to the open courtyard at the foot of the magistrates before the tribunal. So much for due process. There was due process for Roman citizens. There was an established, written, formal, binding, transcending law that the Romans had for Roman citizens. That was violated. That was bypassed. Like a constitution. And then the crowd rose up they start saying crazy things, the fickle mob screaming and shouting. And then the two magistrates who are underlings with limited local authority in that city, they listen to these enraged union bosses, these mafia leaders, make up a false accusation, and they want Paul and Silas arrested, beaten. And, and so they, the leaders comply, acquiesce to that, and they command... The policemen, the, ma the two magistrates command the policemen beat Paul and Silas. The text never says they heard from Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas couldn't give their defense or their plea. That's another abuse of justice, bypassing justice. And they beat them, they rip their clothes, they strip them practically naked, they beat them brutally with rods the police, then they command the jailer take these guys, lock them up. And they did. Stocks, hands and feet in jail. By the way, don't read them their, their rights. Then God intervenes. Earthquake happens. They're set free from prison. The jailer's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't kill yourself. And the jailer says, okay, what must I do to be saved? And he gives them the gospel about Jesus and he believes and the jailer becomes a Christian. Totally transformed. And then the jailer invites Paul and all of his buddies to come to their house. And they do. And they spend the night. And they get food. And they get refreshed. 
and their wounds are healed at the jailer's house. The magistrates and local officials heard about it. Uh-oh. And apparently they heard that Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh-oh. Double uh-oh. So they go to the jailer's house and they say, Hey, Mr. Jailer, tell those strangers to come out and get out of here. So then jailer goes back into his house and talks to Paul and says, Oh, the, the, the magistrates, they sent the police and they want you. They're out, they're out front. They want you. They want you to come outside. They want you to leave town. They're the local authorities. They have power over you. You're a nobody. You know what Paul said? He said, I quote, this is a rough rendition of the Greek text. No way! <laughs> it's two words in the Greek. Literally what he said. Oh, Paul's being defiant. Mm, yes and no, because he knows his legal rights. He brings it up. Because he gives an explanation. Wait a minute. I am a Roman citizen. I have all rights and privileges. I am allowed due process. That was completely bypassed. I was beaten without cause. I was never given an opportunity to plead my case, which is my right according to the law of the land. Thank you, by the way. I'm the one that wrote Romans 13. Submit to the governing authorities. I believe in that. So, Mr. Jailer, you can go tell this policeman, no, I'm not coming out. And then he tells the magistrates, and then they kind of start, they panic, and they get nervous. Oh, please, tell Mr. Paul he can leave on his own conditions, but he needs to get out of the city, hurry! And then even Paul says, I'm not going to hurry. As a matter of fact, me and Silas and my buddies, we're going to go to Lydia's house, who got saved here, and hang out with them for a while and have some fellowship, maybe a Bible study, sing some songs. Then in my own good time, then I'll leave. And that is exactly what Paul did. So that's one example. You could go through the book of Acts where literally uh, when he, another kangaroo court that he was put before, he sued, he appealed to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. No, that means I want to take you to court. You city officials, you lower judges, I want to take you to court. I want to exercise my constitutional right as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. That was not sinful for Paul to do that. That was in obedience to Romans 13. God has clearly delineated the hierarchy of power and the channels. So the parallel is even the Constitution is on the side of churches. So what grieved me over the course of, the reason I'm bringing all this up is over the course of 12 or 13 months, just to hear not just uninformed people or the world on television and CNN and all those secular television stations, because they said it, but to hear prominent, leading, powerful, evangelical pastors and leaders of mega churches whose megaphone and platform reaches 30 million people worldwide saying things that are categorically unbiblical. Quote, uh, the church down in Grace, Grace Community Church down there is being defiant and disobeying the law. End quote. And I'm thinking, mm, no, no. Actually, the mayor of Los Angeles is defiant disobeying the law. That's, that's reality. It took 11 months for it to finally get escalated to the Supreme Court to validate that that was true. That is the law of the land. But a year later, it's important to be reminded of that 
articulate that, meditate on that, think about that. We exhausted Matthew 22, where Jesus gave those parameters of authority and how we're to live. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, which is limited. Limited, narrow, delegated areas of authority. Limited, and then render to God the things that belong to God. What belongs to God? The church of, of Christ. We, we talked about that as well. John preached on that first. Timothy 3.15. The church, the church of God, the church of Christ. It is the pillar of God. It is the guardian of God's truth. Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the boss of the church. He's the master of the church. It's God's blessed church. God shed his own blood for the church. The church is his bride. God has 100% authority over the church. He's told us in his word what he expects from the church. How we as a church are to worship him. He's made it clear. So during this time, I had questions from some of our members. So what's the line? And what jurisdiction? This was literally a question. It was a good question. It was a fair question. What jurisdiction does the government have over the church? And I think they were surprised at my answer. I said zero, nada, absolutely none. The local government, the city government, the county government, the state government, the federal government, the worldwide government has absolutely zero authority over God's church. That is clear. You know, I still had pushback for months from people in this church, even after teaching on that. Well, what do you do? You just keep teaching. You just keep teaching. This is what God has said. It's clear. So, uh, with that, let me close with, uh, oh, let me just go through this list. This was one thing that I wanted to remind us of, warn us of. Here's what, as the dust has settled uh, over the last 12, 13 months, unfortunately in the Christian world, worldwide, not just here in America or California, it's worldwide, as the dust has settled, and you look around the landscape and you see, wow, there, there are some weird things going on because things that violate Scripture, things that are antithetical to what's taught in the Bible, things that God explicitly says don't do, have become normative expectations in the church now. I feared that a year ago. Here's some of them. Have become normative for many people. Uh, the world says, and even people in church, isolate the healthy. Isolate the healthy. That is completely unbiblical. I had just providentially, I had just preached on Leviticus 13 just a few weeks before this pandemic. Went through the whole chapter. You know what God said in that chapter? Isolate the sick. And the world says, no, isolate the healthy. Number two. Stay at home and don't work. How many times have you heard that? John, just stay home. Just stay home. All these people that can actually work at home full-time and get paid? Telling the restaurant owner, owner, oh, just stay home and go to work. Well, I can't. Telling the, the cook at the restaurant, no, just stay home for 13 months. As your business is destroyed and you can't feed your family anymore. Or the contractor who builds buildings for a living. Oh, just stay home. Work on your computer as his life is decimated, loses everything for 13 months, I'll just stay home. How heartless is that? 
So the world says, oh, just stay home and don't work. And the Bible says, get out and work or else you don't eat. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Number three, let the government take care of you. Well, aren't you excited? Did you see what happened this week? The 1.9 trillion COVID relief package that was signed and is coming your way. You might get a paycheck of, forget this, one-time paycheck for 600 bucks. Isn't that exciting? Here in the expensive area where we live, that is one trip to Safeway. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm hardly exaggerating. Let the government take care of you. And the Bible says the church should take care of itself. Acts chapter 2, 1 Timothy 5, Galatians 6, 10. Couldn't be any clearer. Number four, the world said, don't sing. Don't sing. Did you read the Supreme Court injunction on February 26th? I did. I was excited at first. Oh, churches can worship. And then you look in the fine prints like, oh, by the way, you can't sing. So what? Yeah, you can't sing. Yes, I can. No, you can't sing in church. Yes, I can. It's God's church. It's not your church. God commands his people to sing. That is not a suggestion. It's not tangential or secondary. Secondary. God commands his people to sing. That is a form of worship. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Literally says, as a congregation, when you're gathered together, you sing to your God. You worship Him. Singing in church is twofold. Number one, it is worship and adoration to our God. Secondly, it is to encourage your fellow saints who are around you. Literally, you're edifying them by corporate singing. I was edified this morning as we're singing those songs. It's a command. It is an obligation. Sing with God's people. We will be held accountable for it. 2 Corinthians 5 is clear. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be accountable for every single deed that we did in the body and things we neglected to do that God commanded us to do. And to give an account whether good or evil. That's what it says. It's time to get back to church. Number five. The world says, and many churches, I, I personally know a pastor who has shut his church down, literally, and still isn't open 13 months later. They're not even doing outside. Oh, well, well, waiting for the rapture. Still has his job. People are being neglected. It's becoming commonplace. The world says, don't gather for worship and fellowship. Bible says gather for worship and fellowship. Hebrews 10. It's as clear as a bell. We, we've preached on this ad infinitum. Warn the people who are in the practice and the habit of forsaking the gathering together of the saints. Don't do that. If you do, that's disobedient. Number six. The world says, this. the president said this just a few weeks ago. The president of the United States said this. Affirm this. This is how you should feel. This is how you should think. Be afraid. Literally. Live in fear. Do you know the number one exhortation from God in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation? Do not be afraid. That is a command. Again, it's not a, 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 
a choice that we have on our own, but it is an obligation command from God. Do not fear. It's all over the Bible. Isaiah 41.2, Jesus himself said it. Hebrews chapter 2, do not live in fear. Number seven, government controls church, says the world. We've already talked about that one. Scripture's clear. God controls government. And then number eight, corporate worship is not essential, says the world. Gathering is essential, says God all over the place. Just some reasons that gathering is essential. We'll close with this. Why the church must gather. To get, literally, I, I was frustrated, and again, I'm just pouring my heart out today, early on, where we got believers and mature believers and informed believers and educated believers in early April saying, you know what, this uh, Zooming thing works, man. This fills the mandate of gathering together, doesn't it? And I said, no, it doesn't. Are you kidding me? No, it doesn't. I got pushed back on that, too. Gathering means gathering, interfacing, beginning to end. When God created humanity, before sin, before Satan, before the fall, it is not good for a person to be alone. That's bad. Proverbs says the same thing. He who isolates himself is a fool, and then you are prone to temptation. The church is first and foremost the body of Christ. Many parts, many members that cannot function when separated. They must be together in close proximity. This is fundamental to the church. So that's why we need to gather. The church is a body. The church needs to gather because we need to edify one another and fulfill all those one another's serve one another, exhort one another, bear one another's burdens. There's people I haven't seen in 12 months. I can't do any of it. I want to do the one another's with the saints. Do your own self-evaluation. Okay, what ministries have you been doing and serving the last 12 months? Again, we know that there are people, and we said this from the get-go, we always emphasize it, there are people legitimately who are at home and should be. That's a given. We know that. We want to affirm that. They're sick. They're vulnerable. We want to care for them where they are. We already had housebound saints before this even started anyway. They need to be cared for and taken care of. That's not really who I'm talking to. It's talking to saints and believers, uh, that, and I see growing and growing uh, people calling themselves Christians, saying things like, um, well, I shop at Home Depot and Safeway and Macy's, and uh, I go to the zoo, and I'm traveling my vacation plans to go to this state and that state and Hawaii and there and here and get on an airplane, but I ain't going to church. We have got people going to visit other churches, but ain't going to our church, and they're still members of our church. Really, we need to hear about this. We need to do the one another's. We need to hold one another accountable and encourage our saints. So we need to meet together to edify one another, corporate indwelling, According to Ephesians, says the Spirit of God indwells his people when they meet together corporately. There I am with you in your midst, said Jesus. We need to gather together to sing to God in worship. We need to gather together to do the ordinances in communion. We need to gather together for fellowship. We need sharing each other's life together. We need to gather together for modeling one another in discipleship. I can't be modeled or be a model if somebody doesn't see me. That's how Jesus trained his disciples. He said, follow me. That's step one. You're in proximity with me. You live with me. You're close together with me. You watch me. That needs to happen. And then finally, the, the saints need to be together because this is how you build intimacy and closeness in relationships. When you're separated by Zoom or whatever, silence, isolation, 
You can't grow in that personal relationship. And being a human is all about having intimate, immediate relationship. We were made in God's image. God is a social being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are never social distancing throughout all eternity in close intimacy with one another. Human beings were made in God's image. And that's why God was, when he made humanity, he didn't make just one person, one entity. And humans were made in God's image, and he made Fred. No, it was Adam and Eve, and they go together purposely because they are a social being, a social entity made in the very image of the triune God who is a social being inherently. Don't wait to heaven till you decide, oh, I'm not going to social distance anymore because I have to be with people. Because that's what heaven is like. People everywhere. Angels. If you have agoraphobia, I'm sorry, but that's what heaven is like. People everywhere. Beautiful fellowship. That's God's intention. Okay, that's my introduction. I didn't even get to what I wanted to preach on. So, And I, I knew that was going to happen. That's why I read those two passages up front, John and Romans 12, so at least you got some Bible today. Instead of a lecture from Pastor Cliff. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach the throne of grace as your children because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood, gave his life for sinners. And also because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we have immediate direct access to you. What a, what a gift. Thank you for attending to our prayers as we are sinful, we are frail, we lack in faith. We tamper with your word, and yet you are so gracious, patient, caring. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your word. Use the truth that was shared today out of your word to feed our souls, to transform and correct our thinking so that we might live in a way that pleases you, so that you might get all the glory we pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.